Now we have a few kind of questions and comments here, so thank you for responses. Of course, they're of a variety, so they don't exactly <laughs> all add up. <laughs> so I've looked at them and I divided them to kind of three three categories. One is sort of about just about language, really. So there's a question about the use of the word spirit. Does it have its own volition or intention? It sort of sounds a bit like a theistic god, which has a will. <laughs> and what should our relationship with the said spirit be? And is it impermanent? <laughs> and another question about, is there such a thing as a samadhi posture? What comes first, the samadhi posture or the samadhi mind? And there's also a question about calmness and clarity. Are these qualities always found together? What is their relationship? So I'll just talk at that first of all. Okay. Mm. So it's the word spirit the way I'm way I've used it. I knew I'd get into trouble with this. <laughs> I was waiting for somebody to catch me on this one. <laughs> Good Theravadans caught me out. <laughs> we don't know God's stuff around here. <laughs> so it's it's actually uh, sort of referring to to one way of referring to chitta. So which uh, is a is a interesting um, word the Buddha used. So it's often translated as mind. But you also have another word for mind called mano. And jitta is used in a variety of different contexts. And sometimes it means something like your sense of self, your subjective center. You know, this talks about um, you know, y- your jitta, as your body passes away, your jitta moves from life to life. Kind of This sort of language is sometimes used. sounds distinctly like a soul. So sometimes it's used like that. Um, it often means mindset or general, you know, state of mind, you know, in any particular moment. It has inclinations. There can be the reckless chitta, the deranged chitta. Um, the chitta is that which has to be trained and pacified and steadied, and the chitta is that which can be liberated. So it's this, and it's really, I would say, it's when you. Ask yourself most most clearly, you know, where's the sense of me? Where's the real experience of the me-ness? And you know, it's not the body. I mean, this is this is mine, but it's not me. You know, the real sense of me-ness. You try, you wouldn't find a particular thing. But you definitely come up with a sense of well, somewhere there's a, some kind of me experience, you know, and um, that changes. Really, when you look at it, it changes, and it takes on all kinds of clothing and uh, 
moods. So there's dark, bright, positive, negative, and yet it somehow has got a quite a familiar quality to it. You know, it's a certain sense of familiarity. There's a range of of um, postures or clothing that it wears. It, so it feels, oh, there it is again. There's, that's the me thing again. And um, you can also see it as uh, it's it's um, you know when we look at the topic of of transmigration or future births, births from one life to the next in which the Buddha said, you know, consciousness does not transmigrate from one life to the next, and yet there is such a thing as transmigration. You know, so he definitely says, I remember in my past lives. So there's some sense of there's a continuum there. So what is it? The moves from one life to the next is anything. You know, the consciousness doesn't, body obviously doesn't, feeling doesn't. Yeah. And what we say, when well, we say one thing that moves from one life to the next is karma. You know, so there's some way in which karma, old karma, continues. You know, I mean, you don't, if you don't accept rebirth, <laughs> it's not a problem for you. But if you look in the in the we say the the canonical Buddhist account, there is a sense of, you know, one's karma goes on somehow, and uh, uh, the process of, of it going on, I would say, is through sankharas, which are particular almost like genetic codes, you might say. So as you as you continue to act in particular me ways, this is the way I do it, this is me acting, you know, I'm acting from that sense, you establish particular tracks and habits, you know, and uh, those are called sankharas, and they go on from one life to the next, somehow, you know. Or they, they reignite, you might say. It's a bit like sending emails. <laughs> this is the, which is a total, you know, I don't believe, I could believe more firmly in rebirth than I believe in emails. I don't, <laughs> I don't, can't see how that can happen. I don't see no messages flying through the sky, you know. <laughs> so, and spirit, I would say, is this, um, you know, it is a very deep level of of sankara that it's uh, it's the it's the you know it's it's where you get the urge to to wake up. It's also the most you know the the sort of deepest patterning. You know the, the kind of you, you know you've got a kind of personal self, your personality. Well, obviously that doesn't that doesn't transmigrate, but certain deep tendencies transmigrate. You know, and I would say this is a kind of a sort of a, you might say, a sub-personal level of chitta, which still carries a kind of a, a me quality in, in psychoanalytical terms. I don't know what you call it, ego or id or something, but you do get a sense of there's a stratification of the sense of self. And this is somewhere down in the in the basement. Um, so it's the it's the sort of, I would say, it's the bit that most fundamentally feels... Yeah, I don't know, there's something I want here, something, I can't quite name it, but it feels like I want release or I want, you know, it, so it, 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 it's something you can kind of tune into. I, I hope it's what brings you here. <laughs> you know, it's some sense of, uh, of uh, 
fundamental inclinations, fundamental sankharas that lead, that cause one to, to seek awakening, joy, clarity, freedom, balance, harmony, you know, these, these are, there's that movement of spirit. Yeah. <coughs> Relationship to it is, uh, you w- want to listen to it, but don't necessarily believe what it says, <laughs> you know, because it's not, itself, it's not an undying truth. It's it's a it's a conditioned thing, but you can maybe pick up the tones. You can kind of interpret what it's saying. Like, oh, you know, the movement towards release or freedom or hmm, where would that be? So you can kind of listen, meditate on it when you recollect your basic um, aspirations. Then you get in touch with what I'm calling spirit, and it is impermanent. Um, but the word impermanent is again also a little bit um, becomes a piece of language that we accept, you know, st- stock translation of a Nietzsche. A Nietzsche can also be sensed as something when you when you look at the experience of what what this word a Nietzsche is supposed to cover: feelings, mind states, um, the whole whole kit and caboodle of your experience, and some of it seems like seems to keep going on you know <laughs> so it's it's inconstant it's unstable it's kind of wobbling and shifting and shaking and moving it doesn't mean it kind of ends but it, it does shift and change so the spirit it shifts and changes and hopefully over a period of time it sort of it, it becomes clearer and clearer and then it's released so the chitta is that which as it loses its it casts off its clothing, you might say. It casts off its the things it's getting identified with, the things it's burrowing into, the ways it's, you know, and it, start, it becomes clearer and translucent and is released. So that's what I would say about that. So you listen to that, but it, you, you can't, it's not always to be un- taken literally, you know. It might be you get the, but it's to be ref- medit- reflected on contemplated yeah. because if you you know you're listening to yourself you know you, then you don't want to follow the thought patterns you don't really want to follow the emotional patterns but there is a you've got to follow something you know you've got to seek guidance from something in yourself so you seek guidance from listen to spirit and you Look at the Dhamma and you see where the two meet. Mm. This is actually another question here that I would say sort of could tie into that when the Buddha advised Venerable Ananda to remain with oneself as an island, oneself as a refuge without anything else. And yet he also said to remain with the Dhamma as an island, the Dhamma as one's refuge without anything else. So... How can you exp- could you explain this? How come he says just this and then just that? Well, because actually the Dhamma is that which is to be realized in oneself. You have the Dhamma as a, you know, a sort of presentation of ideas by the Buddha or by the teachers. That's, you say, the um, conventional Dhamma, the Dhamma of words, the Dhamma of language. You know, it comes in that form. Well, yeah, fine. But you've got to actually take that in and and translate it 
into your own experience so that the Dhamma becomes in oneself. And we use this is why in the chanting we have this phrase pachatang, word pachatang, which means the Dhamma is to be realized in oneself, not in one's self as some kind of autonomous entity, but intimately realized, subjectively realized in one's spirit, you might say, spiritually realized. Um, then then it, it, it does become a refuge because if it's out there as a theory, could sounds good, looks good, but does it work? You only know that by <laughs> by doing it, don't you? So it can't really be a refuge unless you've taken it in and um, translated it, if you like, or or embodied it in yourself. Mm. There's another question, a similar question on the line of um, aware awareness. How can, so when you experience just cramps as a sensation without preoccupation, is this, this is awareness. Well, awareness is another word that um, we can use for chitta. Yeah. So chitta can also be understood, if you like, as the as the locus of awareness. That is the particular center or the place that your awareness is right now. You know, the, the sense of, you know, when we say there's an awareness, then um, it's centered on something, centered in the mind. You know, so this is chitta. You know, so the awareness could be expanded, expansive, contracted, yeah, could be sharp. It could be bright. It could be occluded, covered over. We could say, in some ways, it's a primary quality of chitta, and yet it's rather like water. And sometimes there are different dyes in the water, coloring it. Sometimes it's very clear and pure. Sometimes it's bubbling and boiling. Sometimes it's a pond. Sometimes it's a narrow stream. So awareness is rather like that. It's always there, and yet it's often mixed up with other mental psychological trends but when we try to just go to if you like to the real purity of the water the real waterness of it and uh you know then you come you look you try to sense past all the movements or the that the awareness picks up or the you know the le leanings and biases into something that's just purely receptive you know, knowing that quality, just pure receptivity. So then in that sense, one just, it doesn't proliferate. So you experience something like uh, physical sensations and it's just, it's just that. It doesn't dig into your heart and stir you up. Yeah. So that's a very, that's a very pure form of awareness. And then saying, well, how do I, how do I allow my devotion to the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha to plentify this or to, to I guess to amplify this so as a greater my, part of my practice and life well I guess as they say more practice is needed um, the more that you 
live the Dharma in yourself and make the Dharma in yourself, your experience of it, a refuge, then that's going to, you know, then in a way, your practice is to start to use that quality to, if you like, to pass what you're doing through that. So you, you just, you, you get a sense of what that balance is, what that clarity is. Then you listen to your speech from that place. You think, oh, that's a bit pointless, isn't it? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it starts to purify your actions and your speech and your thoughts because you place your thoughts under that glass and you think, that's just that's just agitation, you know. There's <laughs> nothing useful in that. It's just filling, just noise. <laughs> or this one's right. This one's this one's what I want to stand with. So y- the more that you, but the d- awareness doesn't judge. It's just that you know, it's like some things as you as you bring awareness into them, they seem to really strengthen. You feel a sense of truth or a sense of compassion because you know. There's something about that that supports continuing strength and clarity of awareness. So it just picks up. Whereas you bring awareness onto things that are of no value, they tend to just not get any juice. They only get juice from from uh, views or confusions of one kind or another. So that's just kind of like integrating awareness into your daily life is very much like trying to Use the meditation to to touch into that, and then, you know, really looking from that place, from your strength, from your clarity, witnessing your thoughts and your actions from that light, and just let it guide you. Mm-hmm. So I did I did kind of move off track there because the other ones we have here, the samadhi posture and the samadhi mind, I think there might be some mixtures here. Often what's called, a, the only thing that samadhi posture really reminds me of is a is a piece of iconography. That is, you see, when the Buddhas are called, described in samadhi posture, they're only sitting cross-legged with their hands in this particular mudra, and that's called the samadhi mudra. And the Buddha sitting like that is called the Buddha in the samadhi posture. Sometimes you see them with their hands touching in like that, touching the ground, and that's called the Bhumispasa, earth-touching mudra or awakening mudra. And then there's the the fearlessness protection mudra, and um, the dana mudra, generosity mudra. So the samadhi posture in iconography is is related to a particular, you know, image Buddha image which is used for reflection. But um, in terms of our practice, then the samadhi, the only thing that Buddha talked when he talked about posture, he said one sitting cross legged with the spine erect, um, bringing mindfulness to the fore. So he didn't say a lot about it. Um, sitting cross legged with the eyes erect, uh, the spine erect. So it gives you a basic standard. Um, of what what he's reckoned to be the most conducive um, way of uh, of concentration. Samadhi means con- roughly means concentration. 
why I place some emphasis on it is, you, is this is a lot of the Buddhist teachings are quite terse, and you could imagine in in a culture where I don't think there were any chairs, but mo- if there were, they'd probably just been for a king or someone like that to sit on. So most people were just sitting on the ground. Yeah. So basically, they they grew, <laughs> they grew sitting on the ground, and they you know the whole body got formed got formed with the kind of muscles and the the posture that holds you upright uh, in that particular way so that when the buddha said sit with your crescent legs crossed and spine erect most people just go like like that you know as they still you know easily do in india whereas um if you've been you know in the chair posture for a lot of your life then then the certain the, the spine goes out of tune, goes out of kilter, and um, the uh, the muscles don't develop. So the, sp- the chair is a kind of spine wrecking system because <laughs> 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 it generally th- means you slump down and generally crush the lumbar vertebra and hunch the shoulders. So you generally. This distorts your spine. So when you try to sit upright, you can't do it because it's <laughs> formed in the wrong way. So I, I do feel it's useful to to try to you have to put some conscious effort and spend time. I think in in bringing the spine to that erect state because it does um, seem to um, open up the front of the body, so you get a lot more openness in breathing. And, you know, the, the breath can move more fully, and that will certainly help to develop um, samadhi through anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing. Mm. The other things the Buddha, the things you can say about samadhi that are actually really practical and, and uh, accessible by everyone, I would think, is samadhi is said to be the four foundations of mindfulness are the defining area. You know, so they have to be the, 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 in the, one of the suttas. It says that the basic sign or the basic characteristic of samadhi, samadhi, samadhi is based on mindfulness. Um, it it is the occurs as the mind comes out of the grip of the hindrances, the five hindrances. Yeah, so the mind is not um, greed or or sense desire, aversion, um, slothfulness and dullness, um, restlessness and doubt. Yeah, these these are are um, they're not entirely uprooted, but they they've been pushed away. So you get that that quali- that sense of the mind is free. That's what's absent. And what's present is the qualities of um, um, a clear focusing mind. It comes called vitaka vichara, which means your your sense of pointing the mind is clear. It's un, it's not foggy. It doesn't just swing around on its own. You get a sense of being able to sustain that, attending to something clearly and in a sustained way, in a, in a receptive way. It's not mesmerized. And there's the factors of of um, uplift, rapture, or uh, enjoyment, and a sense of ease. 
Yeah. So when those are present, then the mind moves into this sense of one-pointedness, and though that's called samadhi. That's the samadhi mind, you might say. There's the mind supported by those factors and, and cleared from the negative factors. Um, and the samadhi mind, you might say, is based on that, and it, it's it fundamentally its intentions, or it, it tends towards um, stillness, and it tends towards ease, greater sense of stillness and ease. Mm. Uh, and uh, you know, so to to recognize it, it's a it's a it's very useful. Samadhi is is a useful because it does skim off a lot of the froth a lot of the uh, the kind of just the sheer static that's going on banging around in your head <laughs> it creams all that off so you get down to some kind of much more clearer sense of the dog can see the rabbit if you see what I mean <laughs> it's not all just rabbits all over the place <laughs> so you know you can actually discern more clearly you know where you're being moved or what's going you know where the sense of attachment lies often to samadhi itself you get attached to it you want more it's a feeling you are somebody because you've got a bit of it or you're getting somewhere because you feel that way so you get this kind of it's sticky about it all but then if you really feel the sense of use samadhi just to find the sense of balance in yourself and you can begin to see those or recognize those kind of grasping or pushing or conceit that can arise and you keep clear, clearing those through insight so you can practice insight with within samadhi it's not you know as the buddha said it was felt it was it was very important to have you know some level of samadhi and then you then you within that you've got a very good arena within which to to look at some of the most um uh you know uh hindering tendencies attachment conceit clinging grasping and so forth that's the samadhi mind so calmness and clarity are these qualities always found together what is their relationship Discuss. (laughs) 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 So, okay. (laughs) Well, um, hmm. again, it depends what you mean by these terms, isn't it? You know, certainly you can have calm, which is not tremendously clear. You know, you can have a calm which is somewhat sedated. <laughs> so I'd, I'd say the emphasis, the most important thing is to get clarity. You can get a calm that's based on clarity. You know, as you get clearer, that's the main thing is to get clearer and to use what calm you need in order to get clear. You know, the the real, uh, what's called vidya, vidya seeing, clarity jnana knowing that's that's that was the that's the awakening experience um and a degree of calm is generally helpful as a support because the mind is more um agile 
it's not weighed down, it's not stressed. So, but then also calm without clarity can mean you just get a little bit torpid or, or um, attached to calm. So, it's a sort of just curl up in in the blanket of it. Mm. So, yeah. Or you get kind, you can get kind of um, you know, lights and shows and things going on in in the calm state that get quite interesting. See, but then it's sort of a bit of a sidetrack, really. I don't think excessive calm is probably a problem for most people. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. But look for clarity, you know. Just to sort of mo- uh, get some clarity and you find that the the interesting clarity will lead towards a useful calm. Whereas the interesting calm won't necessarily lead you towards clarity. It can lead you to also towards just avoidance. So, now we get down to the third category, which is nitty-gritty. <laughs> what to do about confusion and indecision. And uh, father dying of cancer, um, anticipating the family's enormous grief. How can non-attachment theory help? Mm. So we have this sense of confusion, indecision, uncertainty is what to do, and also some uncertainty about the sense of anticipation. And how does non-attachment help all this? Um, yeah. Well, I think I don't know actually what really is meant. But it, when you look at this, it might mean you know, does it mean non-attachment to the the father? You know, so sorry, Dad. You know, but I'm not. But uh, I don't think that's quite the point. The point more is to is to get a sense of of being able to step back enough to get an overview of the whole scenario. You know, both of a person's death, of all our death, of the kind of you know process of of anxiety and bereavement that can go on and will that will go on in fact you know has to go on in a way so most u- usefully it's to um non-attachment is not about is about um you know stepping back to get an overview mm. to support clarity. So theory itself can be an attachment. So, you know, so we say we shouldn't be attached to this, we shouldn't be attached to that, we shouldn't feel anything, feel something, that's that's attachment. But that's that's the theory. And, um, in practice, you've got to practice with what's actually happening rather than the theory of what should be happening, what you should feel or shouldn't feel. So then you 
you know, you can not attaching is also um, about um, perspective. Uh, feelings like this. So non-attachment helps you to be present with an experience because at that particular time you're not searching for answers, you're not trying to feel something or not feel something. <coughs> you know, and you, you step back in order to allow the feelings to be felt and um, express themselves, move through. So it helps to almost like open the situation, open it up. Whereas when we attach, we tend to attach either a person shouldn't die, well, then, but they're going to die, you know. Um, we should try and prevent something happening, well, yeah, but how much can you do? Or, um, you know, worry about um, the sense of shock it creates. You kind of get anxious and nervous about that. Or feeling perhaps one should try to just be totally cool about it all. That's another attachment. Whereas really this non-attachment is just right now. Can you open up to that without taking sides, without hanging on one way or another? You know? So it allows awareness to expand and extend. This is what we can do. This is what can we can do. Mm. We can't ultimately prevent death. We can't prevent sorrow in a head-on way, you know, like that. We can't prevent other people experiencing pain. But we can extend awareness. And that makes the whole process cleaner, more manageable, more compassionate. The resources of the mind can move, can operate, because mm. one's more open, you're not so constricted in one way or another. Yeah. Same with you know, confusion and indecision. I don't know, you know, the, what's behind that, but... Um, Certainly, when one is experiencing these sense states, um, it seems that from what that I may read into that, there's confusion in the decision about a particular thing or a course of action. What should I do? I'm uncertain as to what to do. Um, you know, or there's a variety of possibilities, and I feel confused as to what to follow. So that's what I would read into that. Um, you know, and this is where you know the, the habit of the mind is to say, come up with an answer, come up with a center, come up with some calm, come up with some stability. And you're asking a mind that's in confusion to come up with non-confusion. <laughs> And the mind that's indecisive to come up with a decision, it's not going to happen. <laughs> you know, you're not going to happen. You, you've got to actually, that's what non attachment's about, is you sort of step back, give it room. You know, be 
cause confusion in decision cause agitation the mind speeds up in a sense uh, uh, we speed up the mind's looking for this it flutters it, it's agitated it rushes around it generally looks towards thoughts it gets affected by turbulent emotional tides and um you know y- y- if you just keep kind of putting pressure on it it just cooks it up even more think you know clear straighten yourself up put it together that just puts more pressure on it you just turn the heat up so it's you know it's not going <laughs> to it's not going to be resolved through that non attachment is just you know we step back and this is how do you know you're confused you know you see you can to just to feel these emotional currents and this is the w- you know what awareness is about really what mindfulness and awareness is about it's about spreading your attention over a particular theme it could your mindset you know the buddha says things like he knows the the angry mind is the mind affected by anger one knows the lustful mind is a mind affected by lust one knows the constricted mind as a, as the constricted mind one knows the unconstricted mind as the unconstricted mind it's just basically you know what's what's happening there he's not saying he takes the lustful mind and what a scruff its neck and sorts it out <laughs> <laughs> he just takes the angry mind and slaps it into shape <laughs> Says he knows it, you know. So, <laughs> well, what's the point of knowing it? You know, I know it already. No, you don't. You think it. You don't know it. <laughs> you don't know it in that sense of awareness. That is the sense of you bear that in mind. It feels like this. You feel it. You open to that. You extend your awareness over it. So, it feels like this. It's happening like this. You sense all the waves and the movements in that. And you don't go in there. You don't go in there. You know, throwing more fuel on the fire. You just give it space. But it doesn't mean looking the other way either. It's mindful awareness, not not um, you know, avoidance. So you think, well, what's that going to do? What good's that going to do? Well, you have to do it. Then you find out, you know, <laughs> that, uh, you know, when, when you give, if you've got a, uh, you imagine something that's bottled up, if you just get more space, the waves tend to quiet by themselves. You know, it's like if you stop stirring up water, it tends to settle. This is what non-attachment and mindful awareness does. Is it? It kind of just keeps opening to the plate to to allow things to settle. Mm. Notice when the mind is going through these turbulences, what will tend to happen is you get a kind of a a run of thoughts, a propulsion of thoughts and emotions, like a charge, and it comes running. And then it sort of pauses. But then the other hand, it pauses again. But I always da, 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 stops again. But maybe it's because I'm da, 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 and I should have. Da, 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 da. So it keeps kind of changing track. You see what I mean? It it goes like a hair. One direction it jumps one side and another side. There's these little pauses that you don't hardly notice because they don't make any noise. But it kind of it charges. It runs out of steam. 
for a microsecond. And you go, oh, but, but it rushes off. When you get upset by something, you know, he said this, and he always said that, and I don't, I don't stand for this, and I've got a moment. <laughs> and the next time I see him, I'm really telling my people, I'm, I'm, <laughs> and people are always doing that to me, you know, it goes these kind of little spurts of, of um, uh, projection. And they're really dramatic. And you don't notice, there's these little pauses where the mind has to have a breather. <laughs> before he gets into the next <laughs> the next onslaught you know and just just know just see that the little micro pause you know now if you've got mindful awareness over that then you'd notice that because you're not at that moment really you've heard the story you know this confusion's been going on for a while now you haven't found an answer to it so you're a little bit more dispassionate about it Study it as a pattern. Yada 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 so you pick that because of that moment with mindful awareness, you're not really discriminating between the anger or the fear or the jealousy or the worry and the silence. So you notice the silences, the little micro bits. Oh. Yeah. And they don't uh, have any answers, but they the more you can actually tune into those, you see that those are the breaks where for that second you don't have to pick up the, the story again. But you do. The next time it stops, just see if you can actually kind of find out or look into that pause and where's your body right now? You know, what's, it, what's that got to do with my problem? <laughs> it means you're finding a kind of a, 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 an anchorage point. So gradually you come down, you come down. And when the confusion, you come right, one comes right up with one's head you come right to the edge of your nervous system, it's jangled out, you want to come back to the center because that's the only place you're going to get any any sense of perspective and clarity. And you can find your way back there. You know, not through thinking, not through the emotions, just through mindful awareness and noticing those pauses. And right there, just lean on those pauses. You know, deepen into those for that moment, find when if you touch into your bodily sense, that will certainly uh, give you a get your feet on the ground again. When you find balance, then so often what will happen is a lot of stuff will just kind of cream off as just almost nervous crackle. You know, um, that is just the nervous system just agitated. 
So it's bringing up these thoughts. Mm. And they're very convincing, but often they think like, what am I going to do about the future? But actually, right now, I don't know the future, but I'm not worried about it. So, so the, the, what the, you know, it's, it's not the, the, the problem is not really the topic, but the agitated state which is producing that topic. You know, so it's the, it's the energy pattern and how it gets whipped up rather than the topic. Because a lot of the topics are kind of, are basically unsolvable. <laughs> the mind comes up with unsolvable questions. Yeah. You know. Or pointless question like why am I like this? <laughs> yeah, right. Why do why do birds have wings, you know? <laughs> I mean <laughs> even if you knew would it do any good? So the mind kind of just comes up with questions born out of agitation and looking for answers that wouldn't even make sense anyway. So, but the topic really is the agitated energy that doesn't find a resting place. So you want to look for that resting place. So you step back from the story, allow that that energy to move, and find out the places where you know there's that touching into ground and deepen and extend that. And that will, most likely, that was something you go, oh, well, that doesn't really matter. And, well, we'll sort that out when the time comes. And then, oh, this is the bit I can do. This little bit I can do for right now. You know, it will become much more manageable. As, for example, you know, future loss of family and friends you know I don't know what to do I don't know if I can manage it but what I can work with right now is the sense of anxiety and develop awareness so that when these events do occur I'll be in the my mind will be in the best state to to respond to that and you trust that that's all you got that's all you got the Buddha said it's good enough it's enough to get you through 